FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswhat, a show about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined this week by my pal Mark Matsky and a special guest in the form of Eric Altman. Eric is a BFRO investigator from Pennsylvania. We talk a little bit about the history that he has with the Bigfoot community, and then we get into some really cool talk about stuff like animal mutilations and uh, some of the weird sightings he's investigated. It's a really cool right. talk, so, so listen in. Uh, Eric, what we've been doing is uh, less... Less formal kind of interviews and more like chats, which mm-hmm. I which I greatly enjoy because the whole formality of of doing a show I find it like for me anyway it always tends to make the the conversation a little more stilted and um, I'd rather just blab and see what happens so that's pretty much what we've been doing lately and I'm 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 greatly enjoying it but Eric so. I, I think I've told you this. I don't know if I have, but but years ago when I first got into like paranormal podcasts and all this kind of stuff, I discovered Beyond the Edge and it was uh, one of the first ones that I listened to to the point where, you know, like I went back and listened to like all the Don Keating Sasquatch Triangle stuff and all, all that stuff. God and, help. And Yeah. <laughs> um, and no, I loved it. Like I still actually go back and listen to all that stuff because I find it. It's like a really uh, unique kind of time capsule, too, in, into this uh, era that didn't seem to last very long, where, like, the Internet was first getting getting kind of going, and there was starting to be this online community, but it didn't seem like, I mean, to me, maybe, I mean, you were inside of it, so I don't know, you, you might have a different opinion, but to me, being an outsider, it didn't seem like the the community at that time was trying to devour itself like it does now a lot of the time to me. Yeah, it was it was actually a lot of fun back then. Mm-hmm. We'd we'd get together on um, what do they call it? Um, blog talk, not blog talk, but um, that chat. It's a video chat. Pro huh. can't think of what it's called. Pal talk. Okay. And we'd set up rooms where we'd have just like a Bigfoot room with twenty five or thirty people, and if that everybody knew each other, everybody got along. Mm-hmm. We'd all get together and then just shoot the shoot the breeze about. Bigfoot, you know, the sightings and what was going on in everybody's area and everybody got along and had fun and everything was cool up to about 2008. Yes. Just went the hell in a handbasket. That that is exactly what I noticed. So what what the heck happened in 2008 that uh that is it like the Georgia hoax and all that stuff? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the Bigfoot forums that were uh. just launched and there were so many people on that I stayed away from it because I just couldn't get along with the personalities. I, I just found myself getting angrier and angrier by some of the, the attacks that people were making. And there would be witnesses that would come on there and try to post their encounter or their sighting and look for an ear or someone non-biased or non-judgmental to listen to them. And they would get devoured. And, it, of course, the Bigfoot forums was growing and it was growing out of control. And, and Brian Brown, who was trying to run things at the time, couldn't. Mm-hmm. So we had other admins step in and try to run things. It just got chaotic. And I think that was the start of the downhill of uh, the Bigfoot community. Now everybody's, it's like swimming with sharks. Oh, yeah. And it's all, it's all, it seems like it's mostly relegated to social media. And, yeah. I mean, mostly just Facebook, honestly. I don't, I don't really see like Twitter groups splitting off to discuss Bigfoot in 140 characters or yeah. whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, when When Facebook came on the scene too, that kind of, Really, it brought a lot of new faces in, which was great. I mean, we need a lot of new blood. It was great to see some of the new people, but everybody that came on board, it seemed like, was you know putting themselves over as an expert. You yeah, know, they had their own group, or they had their own new organization, and, and nobody was sharing information. Everybody was bashing each other, and, and that and the Bigfoot forums, I think, was the downfall of, of where we're at now. Yeah, I just thought I just thought it was so cool to to listen to shows like uh, yours and Sasquatch Triangle and Steve Call's show and like, I mean the audio quality on some of the blog talk shows is 
<laughs> is rough. But like the cool thing about I've always said this too, but like the cool thing about Blog Talk is there's like a built in audience. So if you're starting out in podcasting, it's like a great place to go because there's already an audience on Blog Talk who will automatically go to your show, unlike Sasswat where we had to I mean, we built our audience from scratch pretty much. Um but yeah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start really talking too, so so people know you know a little bit about you? Sure. Um, I've been interested in the paranormal going back to 1980. Um, I was 10 years old, and I was kind of interested back then of, of in science fiction and horror and that, those types of genre of films and and topics. And uh, one day I came across Legend of Boggy Creek, and uh, that movie sold me. Um, I was literally hooked on on trying to find out as much as I could about Bigfoot, as much as I could about uh, hominids. I wanted to see if there was any truth to the movie because, as you know, they they built it kind of like as a uh, a movie based on true events, you know. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about the subject. So I spent my uh, from ten years old up through just after I got married, um, learning and educating myself about the subject, reading books. Magazines, newspaper articles, um, just trying to, to educate myself and learn about my area, especially. Um, Stan Gordon at that time was was the only real. Well, Stan Gordon and Paul Johnson were really the only two researchers that were involved, and uh, I, I read a lot of their cases, studied a lot of their work. Um, I was very fortunate back then that uh, Stan had a really cool thing that nobody else has done, and I haven't seen this done anywhere since. But um, there was a local mall called the Greengate Mall here in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. And once a summer, he would uh, take his Bigfoot display, his UFO display, um, newspaper articles, any, anything you know, he thought was worth displaying out to this mall. And he'd set up in the center court. And uh, he'd have like 10 or 15 tables um, set up. And he'd have his volunteers from his group there. And the public would come in. Thousands of people would come in and... Uh, Check out his casts, his photos, um, his drawings of UFOs people cited. And he talked to, to people, to the public. And it was cool for me because as a teenager, uh, I met him at, th- at the age of 13. And we you know, formed a friendship. And uh, I really began to study his work. Um, he became a mentor to me. And, and here we are, gosh, 30-some years later, and we're still very close friends. I just talked to him on the phone the other day about a couple of reports that he got um, we investigate cases together. Um, we've attended each other's events. He's spoken for me numerous times. Um, just formed a, a lifelong friendship from that. Well, you so, said you said you saw a boggy. Where did you see it? Um, <clears throat> I saw it in 1980. I believe it was the summer of 1980. And uh, in Pittsburgh, they had, I don't know if you remember this or not, but back then they had um, the little local TV channels that would play the uh the Sunday afternoon drive yes. theater movies. Yeah. They won in Pittsburgh called WPTT. Um, and, and every Sunday afternoon after I get home from church, there'd be a science fiction or horror or some really bad B movie on. And uh, I'd rush upstairs in my parents' bedroom. They had a little 13-inch black and white TV set up in their bedroom. I'd jump on the bed, flip on the TV, and one afternoon it was on. And I just fell in love with that movie. Uh, what What is it that... I mean, oh, I mean, so so you kind of track everything back to Boggy Creek, then, like your paranormal, like everything that you're into, you track to Boggy Creek. You think? Well, not necessarily the paranormal stuff, because mm-hmm. I was interested in sci-fi and horror, and I did find myself looking at a couple of paranormal books in the library, stuff on the Loch Ness monster, um, UFOs, um, any any books I could find, like Hans Holzer was was pretty popular back then. Um, so I, anything I could find paranormal related i was looking at but i didn't really have a specific interest uh, in bigfoot at that time so it was i I guess you could say boggy creek was kind of like the the uh the catalyst that got me steered in the direction of solely looking into the bigfoot phenomenon it's so it is so mind-blowing to me that this movie has had that effect on so many people because mark's the same way right yeah yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, I I stumbled into the books first, and Boggy Creek was sort of like a carrot that was dangled out there because I had I read about the movie long before I saw it. So it was almost the white whale. My white whale chase yeah. was just to see that movie, and it, it happened to air overnight just when we had gotten a, 
VCR for the first time. <laughs> so that was that was sort of the maiden voyage into VHS and stuff, and that's how I saw it. So, but yeah, I mean, I think I part of that too, Seth, is I think that before that there really wasn't anything, with the exception maybe of In Search of, that had anything even resembling a recreation or a a Bigfoot in a suit type thing, and just the the fascination of actually seeing that on the screen, I think is partially to partially explains the impact that that movie had what what was the first do you remember like the first uh bigfoot sighting that you kind of investigated eric and who was it with um wow (laughs) 20 years um i didn't really go out investigating cases right away Mm um i went to don keating's conference in ohio um i i moved to ohio with my fiance at the time and I was living over in Newton Falls, mm-hmm. and um, I had heard rumors from working in Kent and driving past the Ravenna, um, the armory that's out there. Um, and, and I'd heard rumors from people talking about different paranormal things happening, and it, it kind of piqued my interest. So I started doing an, an internet search at the time at the public libi- library in Newton Falls and found out that Keating was having a conference. I thought, well, that's only like an hour from here, so it'd kind of be cool to drive down and check out, which I did. And uh, I met Smokey Crabtree, Lorne Coleman, um, Larry Batson, just to name a couple people that were there. I think Ray Crow was at one of them, the first ones I went to, and got to meet Don Keating. And when I talked to Don, Don was he said, you know, Stan's probably the only one in Pennsylvania doing anything right now. So why don't you just jump in and, and start looking into these cases? You know, what's it going to hurt? You don't have to go out and investigate cases, but start looking into some of the historical ones and see if there's any relevance to them. You know, maybe you can find an old witness or, or go check out the area. And I said, well, sure, why not? I, I've got nothing else to do other than working. And, you know, I'm, I'm here in Ohio and I'm only a couple hours from PA. So um, Keating was actually the, the first Bigfoot researcher I met that kind of drove me into the field to start looking at these cases. And uh, I moved back to Pennsylvania about a year after moving to Ohio. My father passed away from cancer. So I came back home to to help with my family. And when I came back, um, that's when I really got into spending as much free time as I could looking into some of the historic reports, especially the ones that Stan had investigated, because they were in my hometown. Hmm. uh, They were pretty easy, easy access to these areas, locations. And um, I tried to dig up some of the old eyewitnesses and were able to find a few of them and got to meet them and know them personally and become friends with them. And that's what I did for the first probably year, maybe six months, just going out looking at these historical areas and, and just seeing what the uh, the area looked like and see if it had changed much since the the, uh, the actual sighting came in. Learning the uh, the lay of the land where the the creeks and streams were, the bodies of water were, um, trying to, to see what what kind of food sources were out there for these animals. Why were they in that area? I want just my own curiosity. And, did you did you have anything that early on? Did you have any like experiences or anything happen to you that you thought were possibly like Bigfoot related? Um, the only thing I had weird happen that happened right off the bat. Um, I met a couple guys that were running the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, and they had just formed it in 1998, and uh, they invited me to go out with them. And, and like myself, they were going out and looking at these uh, historic sighting locations and we knew of a place not far from where we lived called livermore cemetery and uh we'd heard sightings from stan and from other researchers that uh had taken place out there in the late 60s and early 70s so we figured yeah, let's go out it's a wooded area there's a big cemetery out there um the old town of livermore is actually um under the Connemaw reservoir it, it was flooded out and they never um went out and drained the reservoir they just kind of let the, the town be underwater. So we thought that'd be kind of cool to see that too. And we went out there and we went hiking on some of these back trails and uh, we were walking along an old railroad uh, bed where the tracks had been removed. It was just the, this uh, sediment. And as we're walking along, I noticed up on the hillside this, what it looked like these large impressions coming down off the, uh, the hillside, crossed across the, um, the sediment, the old railroad bed, and went up the other hillside. And uh, I stopped Steve and, and Hank and we looked at them and we cut kind of thought it was too big to be deer. They didn't look like boot tracks. They were just these large human-shaped impressions in the ground. 
and uh, we took measurements, we took pictures, and we didn't know if they were Bigfoot or not. We just kind of thought it was odd. But that would probably have to be my first possible experience with having anything similar to a Bigfoot encounter. This is uh, a lot of this takes place in the, in the area, like you said, where Stan Gordon's book. Uh, are, are we talking Strange Invasion? Yeah, there, he has three of them. Um, okay. Strange Invasion was our, um, the UFO Bigfoot invasion, mm-hmm. place in 73, 74. Then he's got another one called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, which is some of his later cases um, through the late 90s up into the 2000s. I even have a couple of cases that my group worked with that are in that book. So. Yeah, well, this is though that's the stuff that's like Mark's bread and butter. So I'm yeah. going to let Mark lead off of some of those <laughs> questions because I'm yeah, yeah, I know he's going to have some stuff about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to tell you, Eric, it's really cool to hear your story because uh, my son is 12 now, but he was about nine or 10 years old when we went to Monster Bash in Pittsburgh for the first time, and Stan goes to that in the summer times. Yeah. And we had exactly the same type of experience as you did where you know once we approached his table and Stan found out that Andy was legitimately interested in the topic I mean he took so much time to spend with him and just talked to him and got to know him and and really encouraged him to kind of do his own research and and things like that and uh, I don't know that's just you know that's the ideal I think in anybody who's in this field of inquiry <laughs> is to be that sort of um, encouraging presence and sharing information. And, and we've seen him many other times since then and West Virginia and at the Mothman Festival and stuff like that. And, you know, he remembers our names, which is crazy. I mean, there's no real reason for that at all, except that he's a, a friendly, forthcoming sort of guy. So uh, it just was neat to hear you recount that about him as well and to know that that relationship is still intact oh yeah stan and i are very close friends um and we like i said we've investigated so many cases it's the biggest thrill of a lifetime because i I tell a lot of folks who ask who's your mentor who's your idol and it's stan gordon i mean Mm -hmm. a lot of kids grew up idolizing baseball players or football players i was idolizing a ufo bigfoot researcher yeah now here i am 45 years old and I'm I'm living the dream. I'm going out in the field with him. I'm doing research with him. And, and like he did with your son, he encouraged me. You know, he said, mm-hmm. "There's no reason you can't look at this phenomenon. You can't check out some of these cases." And that's what I try to do too: is encourage young people who come to hear me lecture or come to my table at an event, and you know, I try to pique their interest and get them involved and encourage them. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, the Silent Invasion book, um, you know, it's sort of a very specific time period that that covers. You know, what are your thoughts on that that whole stretch? Because there was such a, a blend of weird stuff going on there. Um, I only wish I was a little older when that took place. Um, I was three years old, three, you know, going into four, um, and, and this stuff was going on. And what's really cool about it is some of this stuff that's in the book took place literally a mile from my house when I was growing <laughs> up. So, wow. you know, it, it's it's really cool to read about some of the sightings that took place and, and some of the encounters that the kids had at the mall or um, the UFOs that were seen and Bigfoot was seen shortly after. I wish I would have been old enough to be able to get out there and investigate with those guys or at least read about them in the newspapers. They happened because just some amazing, amazing stories and cases that were investigated some of them, I, I really have a hard time believing. Maybe it's just my skeptical side because I have to see it to believe it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the stories that are in his book and, and the cases that he retells when he talks and lectures are, are some of the most fascinating cases I, I think I've ever investigated out of the 35 years I've been looking into this. Yeah, and it's that contrast, I think, that makes you really think twice about all these stories because... You know, Seth and I did a show about bizarre Bigfoot, and I think all the reports I talked about were right out of that, out of Silent Invasion. And I just think it's the contrast of Stan relating those stories in a very matter-of-fact, you know, sort of even-tempered way. Yeah. And there's no histrionics involved. He just says, this is the report that came in. And, you know, the fact that he takes, he pretty much takes it, 
at face value, and he can because he talked to the people who are involved. It makes you think, you know, otherwise, in a case where you would just really have to suspend your disbelief in order to, you know, relate to the story at all, because Stan is sort of telling it to you that it changes it just a little bit, enough for you to say, what if there is something to this? And that that's when it gets really, really weird, you know, and not just that Stan's involved, but there's state troopers involved and other very sober-minded people being very close to these things. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the cases are fascinating to me, not because of the the strangeness in some of them or the relationship, that the symbiotic relationship that seems to take place between the Bigfoot and the UFO, often seen either together or very close together in time frame or location. But um, if, if you recall in his book, Stan had um, several teams that were made up of legitimate scientists um, people with a variety of different scientific backgrounds, and uh, he does when he does relay these stories and tells these stories even today, they're very matter of fact. There's no trying yeah. to sway you to believe what he says. He just he mm-hmm. tells what happened and lets you make up your own mind. So I think that's very um, telling to for Stan's support of what he investigated. You know, it kind of gives credibility to some of those cases. Do you mm-hmm. still do you still take a lot of like super bizarre? Uh, sighting reports from that region, like the Chestnut Ridge area, or is it more like straightforward? You know, I saw a Bigfoot walking into a woods, or is it still? Is there still like the really bizarre stuff going on? Um, occasionally, we'll get something strange. Um, not very often. More, more since, and I think the seventy three seventy four flap was as strange as it got. Hmm. But um, we do occasionally get a, a really off the wall case or something bizarre. And that we'll go check out, but they're they're not of the norm. Um, most of the cases that I've investigated or looked into have all been your, I guess you could say, typical Bigfoot sighting cases. There's nothing really strange other than the, the Bigfoot sighting being you know reported. But well, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but like, do you remember like one of the weirder from that region, like more recent? Um, I'm trying to think if I can recall one. Like a, a Bigfoot, you know, riding on the back of a, a Nessie <laughs> across the hillside or something. We've we've had some weird cases where um, people have claimed they. I know um, of one in northeastern Pennsylvania up near the Poconos, um, and this was in ninety nine two thousand, where a gentleman was claiming that he was watching Bigfoot walk through a field and dematerialize right in front of him. Um, or he had claimed that uh, he had seen, heard something in the woods and he was watching the tree line, and all of a sudden he saw this hairy arm just appear from behind a tree. Hmm. And uh, I thought those were kind of strange and really off the wall compared to um, you know, the typical Bigfoot reports I was used to and used to reading about. And what's really weird about this gentleman, and he's not a, he's not a nutcase, he's not a, a wacko as some people may think, I got to know him. I got to know him and his family. I, I stayed in his house. I became very good friends with him. And this was just a, a common guy. I mean, he wasn't mentally deficient. Um, he wasn't seeing things, um, as far as I could tell. Um, he was just having these really odd experiences. And I spent a significant amount of time up in his area researching. And uh, I had heard wood knocks, and we heard calls. Uh, we had rocks thrown at us on one, one occasion. Um, so I, I'm pretty confident that there were Bigfoot in that area, uh, not only due to his sightings, but due to other reports that were coming in. I just never experienced what he did. I never saw the Bigfoot dematerialize or the arm appear from behind a tree, but that's what he was claiming. And, uh, I never found any reason to doubt, um, his sanity because he came across to me as a very sane and very sincere person. See that it's so hard too, because you you can't just discount. I've talked about the, Mark and I talk about this kind of stuff on the show all the time. But like, you can't just discount sighting reports that uh, are are bizarre. But there is like there there's also this thing where I hear people say this all the time, especially people that take this subject super seriously, where they talk about the fact that there's almost like this uh, impression that you shouldn't even be looking into the more bizarre claims because it's going to turn off. The, the t- typical scientific community because of how bizarre the sightings get they're just going to write everything off like 
I don't know. To when uh, this is what I always struggle with when it gets into the like the really bizarre cases because I, I've never spoken to anyone who had anything extremely unusual happen other than the Caton family, and you know just from my impression of the Caton family is like you talking about this guy like they they seem like a completely believable, you know, down to earth family. There's just extremely unusual occurrences going on. On their property. Sorry, Mark. I didn't mean to jump into your line of questioning there. No, go, I, carry on your interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm dovetailing off of that. I mean, I would. Have you had people who have, you know, you've been able to figure out right away who are hoaxing? That's another topic we've gotten into on this show quite a bit. Has anybody tried to hoax you or just sell you a line? Yes, <laughs> several times. Um, had a case in uh, southwestern PA, just uh, to the north of Pittsburgh, where a young man had us coming out to his house almost every weekend for a good three or four month period. And we took teams out there. Um, we would sit on his property for hours upon end and never have any experiences, never hear anything, never see anything, never see any evidence. But yet the moment we left the property, and I would walk in my, my door. There'd be a message from him on my answering machine. Oh, my God, Eric, as soon as you left, they were beating on the house and they were screaming and carrying on and hooping and hollering. Okay. So we either go right back out or we go out the next day. And, and again, nothing. So finally, it got to the point where I left him several audio recorders and we asked him why he wasn't putting up any game cameras. If they're running around like he claimed, where's the proof? And. We put the cameras up, we put the audio recorders up, and nothing happened. Um, we took them down, and he started his claims again. Oh, my God, they're here. Oh my, they're, they're running around. But what was interesting about that is when we go out and investigate, um, he suddenly have to leave the property. He was going out with friends to drink that night or going out with his girlfriend or something. So we'd stay on his property while he wasn't there. It was, it was almost like we were babysitting his house or his property. Oh, man. That went on for about three or four months, and we finally got to the point where we were like, you know, we, we can't do this anymore. We're running out here. He's like, he's like the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. And nothing going on. And one, one particular night, uh, my wife and I and one of our researchers were sitting in a field probably about 200, 300 yards from his house, um, and he lived at, at the end of this long lane. His mother was home. He was home. Um, we had one team behind his house in the wooded area, and myself, a researcher, and my wife were sitting in a field. And he was with us, and uh, he said, I'm going to go check on my mom. I'm going to walk down the lane. I'll, I'll be back up to catch up with you guys in a bit. He got about halfway down the lane and started screaming, there it is, there it is. And I jumped to my feet, and I ran down this lane as fast as I possibly could. And I got to where he was standing on the lane looking into the, the wooded hillside, and it only had to have been maybe seven or eight seconds from I got that field to where he was. And he said it, just, it was standing right there in the tree line. It grunted at me. I put my flashlight on it, and it ran down the embankment. Mm. I looked down the embankment. Nothing, nothing was disturbed. There were no nothing trampled, no branches broken, no brush trampled. There was no sign of anything running down the hill. The woods were quiet. There was literally nothing there. And I was only about eight, maybe ten seconds at most away from where he started screaming. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where I realized this guy is either pulling a fast one on us and wanting us to watch his property while he goes out, or he's seeing things that really aren't there. So we had a meeting with the group, and we kind of agreed that we're just going to let him do his thing, and we're going to move on to the next case. So that, that I mean, for me, if if I'm being hoaxed, I don't know. I think I would grow so bitter as a like someone who actively went out and answered phone calls and stuff. I think I'd get so sick of it because I do hear about that often like happen i mean people i think would be surprised at how often people are calling in like phony sighting reports right i mean that happens pretty it's kind of a common thing right nowadays it is yeah yeah see i just think eventually i would and it wouldn't take long i'd probably be like forget it i'm done (laughs) you've been doing this like 20 plus years so that's a long time to continue to you know go out there what i mean what kind of keeps you in the subject what keeps you going I guess it's the, the the people that are legitimately seeing things that want answers, and I still want answers too. I, I don't I don't have a clue as to what's going on out there, and especially after twenty years, I have more questions than I do have answers. But um, 
I think it's the the next report that comes in because the, the, I do get a lot of hoaxes still, and I get a lot of prank phone calls and bogus emails. God knows I've had them over the years, but I still get the occasional one now and then that's legitimate, and the person saw. I feel they saw what they claim they saw, and uh, it's it's waiting on that next report to come in, and hopefully it's something good. And, and the last couple of years have been kind of slow, but. Still, I, I hope that something good comes in and, and hope that that next report will will give me the, the proof that I'm looking for. Does P, does it seem like in your area that there is kind of like an up and down kind of, you know, rise and fall in sighting reports by year? Or is it, you know, how do you notice or, or do you pay any attention to that kind of thing if, if one year it's big or if it's like every few years or how does that go there? Yeah, I, I paid close attention to that for a while, a long while actually. And we would see fluctuations where it would get real busy for a year or two and then kind of die off for a year or two. And then it would get busy again. And we'd see a pattern of every couple of years. Activity would ramp up and sighting reports would ramp up. And then it would kind of die off. And then you notice over in Ohio, the reports over in Ohio would start to build up again. And it would kind of move back and forth. Almost like a some kind of pattern where the, the animals were moving back and forth across the state line and, and the reports in Ohio would build up and you'd hear Don Keating and Mark DeWorth and those guys investigating a lot of cases. And then it would start up over here again and we'd start investigating cases. So for a while I was paying really close attention to it and uh, we couldn't find a rhyme or reason when they would start or what year they would start. But it always seemed to be a couple of years between uh, I call them flaps of sightings where a large number of reports would come in and we kind of track them down and do our best to investigate. Yeah, it's, those sighting patterns fascinate me too. Because, like, and I've heard you say that. I think you said that on one of the shows you did. Is is how the the there seemed to be a back and forth between Ohio and and Pennsylvania, and I'm that really fascinates me. I'd be curious to learn. Like, is it like weather? Is it rainfall in one state as opposed to the other? Are they following like rainfall? Because I've done, I've done a like a brief search on rainfall in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you track the states or the, the sections of the state that get the most amount of rainfall, they coordinate to where the most sighting reports are happening, Yep, which is, is unusual. Cause you don't think of like a state, I guess, especially like Ohio as having different rainfall in different geographical locations, but it's very different. Like certain parts of Ohio are much more dry and others are, you know, right. constantly getting rain and then it's the same during winter you're getting you know the lake effect snow and all that in in the northern part of the state and but you can track those sighting reports that way with a u.s and if you just do like a cursory google search for like a rainfall map in ohio you can find that really easily so i'm almost wondering if it doesn't have to do with that um of course i'm not a believer but you know i don't <laughs> I, I love to posit what might you know be going on if these things do exist. Yeah, we, we tend to see some patterns, but I haven't been able to make much sense of them because you would think with a pattern, of, of, like taking your rainfall example, um, you would think you'd see when the sightings are going to occur and when they're not going to occur. Mm-hmm. Start to form a pattern, but then as the rain continues, some of the sightings die off. Yeah, no, I mean, if you were going to be able to, if you could, that's the frustrating thing is like if if we should be able to track this data, someone should have shot one of these things or yeah. run into it with their car or something, by you know, driven a car into the woods and hit it. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, that's that's the most frustrating thing about the, about it. You're, you're absolutely right. It is, that, that does frustrate you is when you start to develop a pattern. And I, I did that for many years where I wanted to see where the reports were popping out based on the years and see if there was a migratory route or something. And I did kind of find something, but then it, it fell apart after a few years. So it was ha- kind of hard to track. And that's frustrating because you think you're onto something. And you're like, well, maybe this is going to be where I can go this time of the year to see if they're there and spend my time there, my resources there. But it, it goes nowhere. It's like you start to find a lead and that lead dies out and you're starting back at ground zero again. Hey, Eric, have you said that you've heard word knocks and 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 sounds. Have you had a sighting of your own? Um, I saw something in 2008 over at Salt Fork, and I still don't know what it was. I've had people tell me, other researchers tell me I saw a Bigfoot, but it happened so fast, and what I saw was dark, and it was large, very tall, 
And it could have been a shadow off a tree. I saw it in my high beams. I was at the uh, handicapped picnic area um, okay. in October of 2008. I was over there with another Ohio researcher. And um, long story short, we were leaving that picnic area. Um, and as was, I was backing the car out, my high beams went across the front of this brush. And it looked to me just for three or four seconds at most, something stood up from behind this brush. And I got a bluish white reflection in my light that looked like eye shine. But when I pulled my car back in, I was like, holy crap, did I just see something? And I put my high beams on that brush, and whatever was there was gone. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if there was something there or not. But what's interesting was the next day I went up to that picnic area again, right behind that brush, and all the grass behind that brush was all trampled down, like something or somebody was walking around back there. But I, I can't correlate the two. I can't say for sure if that's what you know I saw did that. Um, but we did hear wood knocks. We had rocks thrown at us while we were in the handicapped picnic area that night prior to us leaving. And mm. um, we had a little bit of activity going on up there. But I don't know if it was a Bigfoot or not. Other people have tried to convince me that it was a Bigfoot. <laughs> but I didn't get a good enough look at it to tell you exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. It's just like a shadow of something large. Yeah, I'm glad. Thanks for telling us where that was because, you know, having being in Ohio and having been to Salt Fork a number of times, you know, you, as you tell that story, you can, I can see the topography of the area and it, it just lends itself to, you know, if there is a creature making fast getaways, uh, Salt Fork's a great place to do it because you can just run down one of those ravines and be gone and off to another part of the, the park. Um, the, the, the thing br- that I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say real quick, the brush that I'm referring to if you're familiar with the Handicapped Picnic Pavilion, mm-hmm. um, it's right at the end of the parking lot there. On the opposite side of it, there is a uh, pathway, a walkway. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that is that ravine that heads down to um, almost down towards the, the lake. And right there at the edge of it, there's that section, a little section of brush that's probably about three or four foot high. And mm-hmm. that's where I saw the shadow. Okay. I was on the back side of the pavilion with my car facing into the handicapped picnic area, and when I backed the car up, the high beam swung across that section of brush and then the picnic pavilion, and uh, that's where I saw it, for whatever it was. It could have been, like I said, a, it could have been a shadow off a tree. It could have been anything. I really don't know. Chupacabra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally different thing. Um, one of the the things that we've gotten off of Stan Gordon's table through the years is a movie called Mountain Devil. Yes. And I was wondering if you could help me understand the the story of uh, that's portrayed in that movie and kind of help me separate fact from fiction. Was there a Eugene Peterson, and did he have experiences, or or you know what what in the the film? I mean, beyond you know the the time spent in real investigation. Uh, the, the story of Eugene Peterson is that a, a fiction, completely fictionalized account, or is is there partial truth to that? Well, there, there's partial truth to it, as far as we can tell. Um, Ryan Cavallini, the director, and Dave Rupert, who were he was, in, I think both of them were in the movie. Um, they had heard of a case in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania where a guy had a hunting cabin, and he and his buddy spent significant time at this hunting cabin, and they had several encounters what they claimed were a Bigfoot, and they eventually shot and killed this Bigfoot and buried it on the property. And on the guy's deathbed, um, he confessed to a friend who was a police officer that he had shot and killed a Bigfoot and buried it on the property. And uh, the police officer filed a report with the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society and Ryan and Dave talked to the police officer on the phone and tried to make arrangements to go out to this property and look for this supposed body and, and talk mm-hmm. with the police officer in further detail. But it only got as far as a phone conversation. And then after that, it kind of died. The guy wouldn't get back to them. So there is some kernel of truth to the movie as far as them getting this report and hearing this from this supposed police officer that it happened. Um, they kind of turned it into a fictional type of story for the movie, but it's based on that supposed um, encounter or encounters that took place in the 70s in Phillipsburg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
What are, what are some of your favorite sighting reports that you've taken from the state? I've had some really interesting ones that have convinced me there was something going on on the property. Um, I had one in the little town of Dubois, Pennsylvania, which is in South Central PA. And uh, a mother and her son, a single mother and her son, were living in a farmhouse on probably about two, maybe three acres of uh, property surrounded by woods. And uh, during the summer of 2004, they were having visitations by something that would come around the house at night. Um, they could hear it walking outside. And, and during that summer, it was very hot, so they had to leave the bedroom windows open and the, the windows in the house open. They could hear it walking around, and every time it came around, it brought with it a really horrible stench. Um, and little things started adding up. Um, they had several cats on the property that disappeared one by one. Um, they had a pond, a, a, a man-made pond outside of the house just a couple feet from the the house that they had freshwater clams and fish in the pond. It's, everything in the pond disappeared and neatly they would find uh, the freshwater clam shells neatly stacked up on the edge of the pond. Um, the dogs would start going crazy at sundown, um, growling, whimpering, wanting in the house. Um, they had a Doberman that wanted in the house so badly one night. It was so afraid of whatever was out in the woods that it, uh, got up on its hind legs, chewed a hole through the screen door, and the screen was on top. The wooded uh, part of the door was on the bottom. It tore a hole through the top part of the screen, pulled itself up with its front paws, and nearly hung it Jeez. trying to get in the house. Wow. Um, the, dover, uh, the, uh, the beagle that was tied up on a runner outside went in the doghouse and tried to dig a hole through the back bottom part of the doghouse to get under the doghouse. So something spooked the dogs. That sounds uh, like Minerva. The, the the family was scared. The mother was scared. She recorded what she believed was a Bigfoot killing one of the cats. Um, and she played the recording for us. And it was eerily haunting. You could hear this cat just being ripped apart by something. So we spent uh, probably three or four weeks on the property. Um, we found, unfortunately, we didn't tell the owner because we didn't want to scare her. But we found remains of some of her cats in the forest on the hill above her house. Um, we we noticed, and I noticed this in particular, the, uh, the dog's behavior changed as soon as it started getting dark. The sun started going down. I watched these dogs go from happy and playful to absolutely terrified. Um, one night we spent on the property um, in a little section of woods about 100 yards away from the house, and we heard something on the hill walking above us, and it was letting out this un- un- god-awful god breathing type of noise. I can't even do it. It, it sounded like somebody with real bad asthma with a really large, large and loud lung capacity. Hmm. Um, so I was pretty convinced that they had something going on on that property. Um, we were up there for probably about three or four weeks, um, and we spent many, many nights up there. And uh, fortunately, we had a researcher who lived in Dubois who kept in contact with the mother until one day he called her to see how they were, and there was no answer. So we went out to the farmhouse and found the farmhouse empty. The family had moved out. Oh, wow. We never heard from them since. So we don't know if they were evicted or they got had enough and left or, or what. But uh, that was a pretty convincing case to me that there was something going on out on their property. They just they never reported seeing the creature or um, having anything violent happen to the house or to them. Oh, so okay. So they never even saw it. It was more like a. So did you actually see these cats that were dead or with the remains of them? Yeah, uh, uh, a torso the back legs and the tail of one of them, and it still had fur on the tail and, and part of the legs. Okay. We found the head of one of the cats that had the hide ripped off the head. Um, and I think we found one of the cats that had been, like, kind of ripped in, ripped in half, but it was still intact. Like, something tried to rip it in half, but it was still partly together, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, did this strike you as something that automatically seemed ex- like something that couldn't be an animal? I mean, or, or, you know, an animal killing these things. I mean, obviously, we, we have, you know, bobcat and, and bear in that area. but Well, I, I wasn't sure what was killing these animals, these mm-hmm. cats, because where we found the cats, we found a significant number of deer bones. And they were scattered throughout this section of woods on the hillside above the house. This is incredible. I, yeah. gotta, I feel like I need to come to, come over there and... I don't like track this family down and find yeah. out what their story is. It was an amazing, amazing few weeks that we spent out on their property. And uh, I still to this day don't have an idea of what was out there. Once they moved out, 
they put for sale signs up on the property. We didn't want to go trespassing and, you know, have somebody come out and shoot us or chase us off. So we were hoping we would hear back from her or maybe the son, but we never did. Well, I mean, kind of jumping off of that, do you, so, so one of the things that got me into Bigfoot in general was these, there were these reports down where I grew up of people seeing something back in the seventies. And then, you know, I went driving down on these back roads one day and I talked to an elder, elderly couple that told me that, that they had found deer bodies like ripped in half and stuffed up in trees on, uh-huh. on, on the property down there. Have you ever heard of, of that sort of thing where like, it's almost, it's, it's almost hard to stretch the imagination to figure out what kind of animal could be naturally ripping deer in half and shoving them up in a tree, especially in eastern Ohio, where we don't have a lot of black bear. I mean, I know there, there have been black bear here, but it's not normal, whereas I, I guess where you are, there are black bear. But, I mean, what do you have any odd, like, animal deaths or, or even, I guess, human missing 411-style uh, Bigfoot execution stories? <laughs> Yeah, actually, that's probably the most interesting and intriguing case I've ever investigated. Um, I wasn't part of the initial investigation, but I've been up to the property, um, and I, I've walked around those woods, and it, it's a fascinating, fascinating case. Um, this happened with uh, the family, the last name's Boone, and they lived in a, um, a small area up in northeastern Pennsylvania, not far from where I was telling you the guy had his, his strange encounters with the Bigfoot dematerializing. Um, they lived near a little town called Tawanda Mm -hmm. and, uh, 4th of July in 2006, they came home from uh, a night out with the family celebrating the holiday. They pull in the driveway of their house. And as they're walking up the driveway into the house behind their home, they have uh, a huge section of woods, uh, a large number of acreage that abuts onto, uh, state forest land. And in that section of woods, they began to hear screaming, which, as the father described, it sounded like King Kong roaring, but it was coming from three different areas in the wooded section behind their house. And this went on for a good 15 or 20 minutes as they stood in their driveway and just listened to these screams. So um, after hearing it for about 10 or 15 minutes, they had enough of it and they decided to go in the house. And the next day, um, the kids decided to head back in the woods and see if they could find the source of the screaming. Well, they get back into the woods so far and they come across a deer kill. And this isn't your typical normal deer kill. Um, this was a doe, probably weighing about a buck sixty, buck seventy. Its right front leg was tightly wedged in the Y of a tree, and from the mid torso back on the right side was completely ripped out and gone. All the uh, intestines were gone. There was a gut pile on the ga- the ground from just its gut. The heart was missing, the liver was missing, some major internal organs were gone, but just the, the gut sac was there. The right leg was missing, um, and it appeared that the head of this deer had been bludgeoned by something, because there was blood all over the, the top of the head. Hmm. The deer struggled significantly because there was blood all over the, the Y of the tree where its leg was wedged in the tree. Um, the kids were pretty spooked by what they had seen. They did a preliminary search and found very large human-looking footprints in the ground. No kidding. Um, they found several trees that had been literally uprooted with the roots still attached, and they were tossed around. They said it looked like a major thunderstorm had come through, like a microburst, and just ripped trees out of the ground. Um, and they, had, they found that. Uh, they contacted the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, which I was running at the time, and we immediately dispatched researchers to the area who got out there a few days after it happened. Um, They found the deer still in the tree, its right leg still tightly wedged in the Y of the tree. All that remained left was was the hide, um, the bones, and part of the carcass. Most of it was gone, but it wasn't eaten by any animals as far as they could tell. All that was left was just the bone, the hide, um, and it looked like it was just decayed and, and devoured by insects. Um, they looked around. They didn't find any other evidence other than the trees had been ripped up out of the ground. Um, the kids showed them where the footprints were. But the deer remained in that tree for a long time, and we even offered to take the deer off their hands. Because at the point, that point, we had a wildlife biologist we worked with, and he was willing to take a look at it. And, and uh, he was attending Unity College up in Maine, and he was willing to take it up there and have their biology department look at it for us to, to try to determine what killed the deer. But the family just wanted to leave it alone. But... Um, 
there's pictures of that on the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society website under their photo pay, photo section of the deer kill that um, happened the day that the kids found it. The pictures they took, the footprints, the trees that were pulled out of the ground. Um, it was fascinating. I've never seen a deer kill like that before. Um, and I've been a hunter for 20, 25 years. Mostly if an animal is killed by another animal or shot, it's on the ground. Unless a wild cat would take it up in a tree. Right. This was, its right front leg was why, in the, why the tree tightly wedged in and the rest of the body was hanging down on the ground. How high was the, the why of the tree? Maybe three feet. Okay. Yeah, it, it, was, it, it was to the point where its, its right front leg was in the, the why of the tree and the rest of the body was on the ground. Hmm. Hmm. And, yeah, so I've got, see, that, that actually does sound similar, though, to, to what was going on where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have no idea what killed it. Um, I wasn't there to to witness it, but looking at the the tracks, the, the pictures they took of these impressions in the ground, seeing the the damage of the trees, hearing the story of the the family told of the three different whatever it was in the woods that were screaming at each other, and then them finding the deer kill, to me leads to some kind of large predator being in that forest and, and mutilating that poor deer. Yeah, they can bludgeon something. <laughs> And it's really odd because they took pictures of the head, and you could see on the top of the head where something hit it with some kind of object. There's there's actually marks on the top of this deer's head. <laughs> yeah. You really have to hand it to those kids, though, to go out there and sort of intrepidly take pictures and then go back out again. I mean, if it was me, yeah. I'd be up in my room, I think, <laughs> for the rest of my young adulthood. Well, I think it helped that they had a, um, a background or a growing up in those woods, as, you know, from the time they were little, and being mm-hmm. from those woods, and not really being afraid of anything in those woods, and you know, just having a curiosity to find out what was screaming in those woods the night before. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Eric, would you talk just a little bit about your uh, your program, Beyond the Edge? Uh, How'd you get into doing that, and what's some of the the interesting Bigfoot stuff that you've maybe come across because of the show? Um, sure. Um, we started Beyond the Edge Radio, Sean Forker and I, back in 2007, back in the old blog talk days. Um, back then, there was a, a number of Bigfoot shows, and we talked a little bit about you know Don Keatings and um, Steve calls and there was a couple others, Bigfoot quest and Henry may had a show and, um, there were, there was some other blog talk, Bigfoot shows. And Sean and I felt at that time that, you know, there were maybe too many of them. So we thought, why don't we do a show that talks about everything unusual and strange, not just the Bigfoot phenomenon, because that's going to get worn out pretty quickly. We thought, so we, we decided to start talking to paranormal researchers and UFO researchers. Cause I still had that interest from a kid in those subjects and, and Sean did too. So we put the show together and we just thought we'd, we'd do it for you know, maybe some, a couple of months and it would die off like most of the blog talk shows did. And, uh, here we are going on our, in our ninth year on the air. And, uh, we moved from blog talk, obviously. Now we're on, I think six or seven internet networks and one AM station in, in the, uh, um, Tallahassee, Florida area. So, um, it's pretty cool. Um, we do it once a week, and we still talk about all 14 topics and subjects and talk about true crime, serial killers, anything that's off the wall and unusual we try to cover on the program. Um, as far as Bigfoot stuff, um, I've talked to so many Bigfoot researchers, um, both conventional and non-conventional <laughs> over the years. Uh, so, I've heard so many different ideas and theories on the show. Um, I think one of the most unusual um, came from um, Jack Lapsoritis, I believe his name is. He wrote the Psychic Sasquatch and some other Bigfoot yes. books. Yeah. Um, his thinking is a little different than mine. Um, and what's interesting, and you'll find this interesting as a side note, his second book actually featured the gentleman that I went and investigated up in northeast Pennsylvania, and his encounters are in that second book of uh, um, Kiwani Lapsoritis' story. So. But uh, he was one of the more interesting characters that we've had on the show to talk about Bigfoot. 
we've also had the conventional Bigfoot researchers. Uh, William uh, Will Jevning's been on. Uh, we've had um, John Green on the show. Um, Don Keating, <laughs> we mentioned him a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had the, the gambit, if you will, of Bigfoot researchers. But Keating looms large in Ohio and PA. Like, it isn't just, I mean, honestly, it's beyond that. It's kind of the whole subject in general. But if you're in this area, especially um, as a kid, he was the only Bigfooter whose name I knew. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't into this. I, it was before I was even into Bigfoot. It was, you know, I just knew of Keating because I was, I lived 25 minutes away from here where he lived. So, yeah. but yeah, Keating's heavily involved. So, um, Eric, where do people need to go online to learn more about you? And, oh, you know what? Before we do that, let's talk about the event you've got coming up. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you're involved with that, too. So. Um, it's, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, it's called the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure, and um, it's not really the first of its kind I've held like this, but it's the first of its kind where I've introduced speakers and workshops. Um, I've hosted Bigfoot events in Pennsylvania from 2000 to about 2011. Um, I hosted eight Bigfoot conferences over here. Um, I've, I've worked with MUFON putting together a UFO and Bigfoot conference in 2011. I've helped host, uh, helped other people organize their events. So it's something I'm familiar with putting together. And with the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, when I was the, the, direct, the director there, um, I, uh, I would hold one or two group expeditions that we'd open up to the public and allow people that had an interest or an, an enthusiast to come out and join us in the field and see what we're about, see what Bigfoot research is about. And I kind of took that idea, the idea of a conference, and seeing how successful some of the uh, events in Ohio, like the Bigfoot um, Adventure Weekends that Sharon Lee and um, the guys from Frontier Fathoms put on, and then uh, Robin Cartwright, John Cartwright put on the uh, Squatch Fest over in Mohican. So I saw those, those things were doing pretty well, and I figured, well, there's not really anything like that in Pennsylvania I used to do the camping trips. I used to do the Bigfoot conferences. So why not combine something like that and put it together? So on May 5th, 6th, or 6th, 7th, and 8th, 6th, 7th, and 8th, uh, I'm holding the first um, Pennsylvania Bigfoot camping weekend, camping adventure. Um, it's going to be open to the public where all they'll have to do is pay for their campsite or their cabin if they want to stay at the campgrounds, Benner's Meadow, Benner's Meadow Run Campgrounds. They'll stay there. And then um, we'll take them out on Friday for an afternoon hike or Friday evening for an uh, evening outing with us. Um, Saturday is going to feature um, five lecturers. Um, Speakers are going to talk on Bigfoot, and those include Stan Gordon, uh, Brian Parsons from over in uh, Twinsburg, Ohio, um, Steve Calls, um, Dave Dragason, and uh, an eyewitness, Bob Gratson, who's also a wildlife biologist. He had a sighting. Um, those will be our speakers and we'll have three workshops where researchers are going to show the general public or those who attend, um, how to make plaster cast, what signs to look for, um, animal track identification, equipment to use in the field so that the amateur or those people just getting into it or having an interest can kind of learn what to do and how to do it right from those who have had experience in the field um, we're going to have uh, a charity auction raising money for two charities in the local area, and we're going to have a big cookout. But the, the highlight of the event is Seth, you and Brandon are coming over from Small Town Monsters and uh, are going to screen the Beast of Whitehall for us. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that because I don't think – I don't think we're going to do another event like this. Like I don't, I, we have a lot of stuff scheduled, screenings and stuff, but we don't have anything like this where we're actually. And I mentioned it when I posted about it on Small Town Monsters, but where we're actually like part of a, you know, like a an actual kind of Bigfoot themed camp out, and we get to take part in it and show the movie. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm hoping so. Um, we're starting to gain traction as far as interest in it. People are starting to buy tickets for it. Uh, it's only twenty bucks for per person to come out and and hear five lectures, uh, see three workshops, and, and participate in those workshops. Go on hikes and outings on Fridays, uh, Friday, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday. Uh, get to see your movie, uh, which I, I got to tell you, bud, it, it is an awesome documentary. I really enjoyed it. 
Um, they get to see that. They get to hang out with other enthusiasts, share stories, hear stories from eyewitnesses. It's going to be a fun weekend where there's nothing expected of anybody. Just kind of laid back atmosphere. People can have fun. They can learn. They participate and uh, learn as much as they can about Bigfoot. Where where can they go to to you know get tickets and all that stuff? Uh, we have a website set up, um, and it's a little lengthy, but it's uh, PA Bigfoot Camping Adventure dot Weebly dot com. Or if they just contact me on Facebook, Eric H Altman on Facebook, um, I can give them information. You have information. You know, you can direct them towards mm-hmm. me or, or however they want to reach me. But that's the easiest way is the website or me on Facebook, and I'll get them set up. Awesome. And what's uh, what's the date? May sixth. 7th and 8th. Okay. Thank you. And where can they find Beyond the Edge? Uh, that's real easy. BeyondTheEdgeRadio.com. There we go. <laughs> All right, Eric, thanks so much for joining us and, and telling us about the PA Bigfoot and some of your experiences because you've been in this a long time. So, And, and you're, you owe, I owe some debt to you for, for being a part of, of – um, actually, saying a debt probably isn't appropriate. You owe me because you got me into – all of this stuff. So. <laughs> I, I actually owe you guys a, a big thank you because I really enjoyed the show. Um, this is one of the few Bigfoot podcasts or, or shows that I listen to. And, and we talked a little bit about at the start of the show how it's kind of a laid back feel now. And, and I like that. I like you can just get on here and there's no formal questions. You don't have to um, answer anything specifically. You can just chat and, and share information. And I think that's what's really missing from the Bigfoot field these days is sharing information and learning stuff. So I really enjoy the show. Kudos to you guys. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks Thank for you. coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Thanks for asking.